0: And just sort of saying to myself, well, not saying to myself, but being really alert to this idea that life is short and fragile and that thus as an approach to life, we either need to, you know, really have an awful lot of fun uh, and expect to burn out fast or try to have a positive impact on the world. And I think in terms of how I've tried to live my life and hopefully I've got a fair bit still to go, uh, I'd like to believe I've managed to balance both the impact and the fun uh, so far hello
1: my name is matthew sortino and welcome to moments of clarity today i'm speaking to toby kent toby was australia's first chief resilience officer appointed under the prestigious rockefeller foundation global resilient cities initiative As Chief Resilience Officer, Toby created and delivered Australia's first urban resilience strategy, Resilience Melbourne, a collaboration across Melbourne's 32 councils, state, private and not-for-profit organisations. Before this, Toby spent two decades working across five continents on significant corporate and community-based partnerships. Toby moved to Melbourne as ANZ Banks Global Head of Sustainable Development. He then worked with MMG Mining Corporation to help establish its sustainable development team and deliver a targeted community development program for its operations in Lao PDR. Toby was head of PricewaterhouseCoopers' sustainability and climate change team in Hong Kong and led PWC UK's sustainability work with global retail and consumer goods companies. Toby is a board member of the Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia and an associate of the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. He has a master's degree in housing and urbanisation from the London School of Economics. Toby is now working on his newest venture, Alice Kent Consulting, with his friend and colleague, Brett Alice. I was absolutely thrilled to have Toby on the podcast. As you have heard, he has an incredible professional background, but what struck me most in our conversation was how down-to-earth, humble and open Toby is. Toby and I discuss his work as Melbourne's Chief Resilience Officer, sustainability and urban planning, the similarities and differences between working with government and corporates, the impact of COVID, facing the climate crisis, individual resilience versus collective resilience, how to make progress in the face of inaction and cynicism, Toby's personal journey of resilience and much more unfortunately the internet was playing up during our conversation small segments of our discussion were lost and there were some issues around the sound quality however these improved over the course of the conversation and did not stop us from having a very informative and worthwhile conversation if you would like to find out more about toby and his work please follow the links in the show notes once again thank you for listening to moments of clarity my aim is to release new episodes every two weeks over the next few months and to start transitioning back to -to face-to-face conversations. Zoom has been a blessing in disguise in terms of the range of guests I've been able to talk to, but nothing beats looking somebody in the eye without a screen in between. If you have not had a chance to go back and listen to previous episodes, go through the back catalogue and give them a go. And now I bring you Toby Kent. Toby, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Why, thank you for the invitation. To get started, to give a bit of context about what we're all about at Moments of Clarity, it's... Really simple. It's about people that have aligned their values with their actions. Um, and the reason I started this podcast was because I felt that I had all these values that I very rarely acted upon. I talked the talk, but didn't really walk the walk. And I've been attempting in my life to uh, to change that fact and be less of a hypocrite and start, you know, uh, actively involving myself in the causes I care about. Uh, and and to inspire me, I talk to people that I feel have you know, begun the journey or or are walking the walk in a way and in a sense. And I know that from what I followed and, and heard about you, Toby, that you're doing that, at least in your professional life, that you've got a really active role in, in making Melbourne and the world, you know, in general, a better place and a more resilient place in, in your previous role. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now and a little bit about your professional career? And, and then I'd love to jump into a little bit about you too, Toby, but we'll start with your career.
0: Yeah, thanks, Matt. And you know, in answering your question, I mean, um, in terms of what I do professionally, and before we move on to kind of, as you put it, you know, maybe who I am, I have um, tried to align throughout my career what I do professionally uh, with who I feel that I am as a person that I hold true or dear. So the way that that's manifesting at the moment is, I, I actually have several some projects on the go, but my main main focus is working with a colleague of mine uh, in a consulting practice called Ellis Kent. I'm Toby Kent, he's Brett Ellis, we didn't spend that much on the marketing Um, and our work really focuses on helping organizations uh, sustainability ambitions uh, or indeed their resilience uh, ambitions and I sometimes often people say kind of what's the difference between sustainability and resilience isn't Resilience, just sustainability repackaged, anyway. And it's and it's sort of relatively simple terms. There, as I say, there's a huge amount of overlap, but resilience is uh, perhaps more acknowledging of things going wrong along the way to trying to achieve a more sustainable way of doing business and and living our lives. So we are working with several large corporates and also some peak bodies we've done in the the last few months work with the Victorian government and I'd say probably about 70% 70 60-70% of our work is with local government and that's because uh, my colleague Brett came initially out of local government Um, when certainly he was working in local government when we met. And the reason that I met him was that I had this fun role as Chief Resilience Officer for Metropolitan Melbourne, which involved working across the 32 uh, of Melbourne's councils. Um, So there's a little bit of a a legacy from that work. I, I think that's partly why so much of our work is with local government. And I also think that because of the broad range of issues that local government ends up picking up, uh, they also see a value in what we're bringing to.
1: Can you explain a little bit more about that role and you know how, how you came about to getting that role? you know what did you think prior to taking up you know that role to what it ended up being? Just some of your yeah. personal insights in that
0: If I start with where it came from, it was and is uh, an international initiative that was created by the philanthropic organization in the United States. And as they approached their centenary, they said, if we're going to be around for another hundred years, what would be the single greatest contribution we can make to the world? And they drew from their own experience and they'd uh, sponsored a number of kind of urban researchers and urban workers uh, over the last 50 years or so. But importantly, they also looked ahead and they said, well, what are the big trends that we're going to have to tackle? And they landed on urbanization, globalization. So essentially, as we have ever more people living in cities and as those cities are ever more interconnected and interdependent, and putting over that, the challenge of uh, catastrophic uh, climate-driven events happening, they said, well, that would be, you know, our great thing if we begin to solve that. And then they sort of said, well, but what is that? And what do we call it? And they said, well, I guess it's about being resilient and resilient in cities. So let's call it urban resilience. And then the question went to, well, how many cities? Um, how do we, what do we need to do? And the, there's a little. this is maybe where the science began to blend with the art. And they kind of, I, I think they essentially said, well, it's for our centenary and maybe 100 cities and $100 million has quite a nice ring. Then they yep. said, oh, great, let's do that. What do we call it? Well, let's call it 100 Resilient Cities. And so that was the um, initial organisation and network that was born. Melbourne uh, applied to be part of it. And they came back to Melbourne saying, we'd love to, or, or more specifically, Matt, the city of Melbourne applied to be part of it. And the Rockefeller Foundation came back saying, listen, we'd love to work in Melbourne. He thought, you know, some amazing... Um, characteristics you're known for being creative and cooperating and you also have some real challenges um, in in the forms of your urban growth and the uh, extreme heat and fires and so forth but this if this is only about the city of Melbourne then you're not in and so my role in this uh, as part of being hired part of the reason I was uh, selected was the criteria in part was you have to be able to understand and work on these concepts of resilience, but perhaps even more importantly, you have to be able to get large numbers of organizations that don't necessarily work well together to cooperate. And so that's kind of, that was the starting point back in 2014. And uh, I'm happy to pick up whether or not the job is what I expected uh, or any other way you, you want to take the conversation.
1: Well, first of all, you mentioned that, you know, it was about these councils or groups of people that may not uh, be used to working together or not work well together in the past. Why were you chosen to be the one that was able to bring across something different to get these little, you know, disconnected parts to connect and and to, to you know, communicate and collaborate a bit more, um, firstly? And did you find that you are able to make that happen? Did you find that the initial criteria was where it ended up going, you know, across those five years?
0: In terms of why I mean, my, I have based my career since the late 90s on working in cross-sector partnerships um, before the resilience work uh, of the last half a dozen plus years. I generally spoke about being a specialist in the fields of sustainability and sustainable development. And I tended to do that within large corporates and working with a business focus, but in non-traditional business areas. And and as I say, fundamentally about helping organizations and sectors that don't necessarily necessarily collaborate well uh, to do so for the, hopefully, for the benefits of consumers and society more broadly. And so I guess it was partly that that attracted them to me, uh, a phrase that one of the people on the um, interview explaining to me why I'd got the role was he said... um, you're very well connected, but you're not necessarily well known. Uh, and that was appealing to to them. They didn't want somebody who was going to attract undue media attention or become kind of the story in and of themselves. Um, but at the same time, they didn't want someone who wasn't able to pick up the phone and and bring people together. So, Uh, I guess there's a combination of those two things, plus having, you know, uh, I hope anyway, uh, had a degree of uh, relevant technical expertise, uh, having worked in that uh, type of field for a number of years. Uh, And I guess one of the things that was nice about the role appearing was my master's degree is actually in urbanisation. And so it was a chance to take all the sustainability work that I'd done for 15 or 20, yeah, 15 or so years, uh, and, and recast over the top of it. Um, in terms of, you know, what was it, did the, kind of, as you put it, Matt, the, the journey match the initial criteria? In some ways, yes. Um, inevitably, when you're taking on a, a really big project uh, with lots of people in, in many different moving parts, there are going to be surprises along the way. One of my surprises, was uh, a very pleasant one, uh, just in terms of the tremendous goodwill uh, with which people approached this, and and how well, on the whole, we were able to bring people together. We began the work in late 2014, and I spent January and February of 2015 meeting with the chief executive of uh, every metropolitan council, uh, and essentially saying, you know, we have this opportunity, but if you're not on board, we, we you know we, we really won't be successful. So, what do you need uh, in order to be interested in in joining in, uh, and so on? And while that may not sound terribly sophisticated, the feedback that we got at the time was that it was very unusual um, for projects of this nature to be approached from quite a kind of humble and inclusive perspective rather than we're going this way join us if you if you want to uh, and you know the ship's already sailing kind of thing so we spent a lot of work pulling people together before we even ha- had our first meeting and then alongside that we did a, a lot of uh, analysis um uh, around you know w- what might be the things that were likely to impact the city Um, in the future. So we we produced an an initial report highlighting the various uh, vulnerabilities. And by May 2015, we had essentially the whole, uh, all 32 metropolitan councils uh, that had um, supported the creation of the Resilient Melbourne Strategy, which was uh, a plan that represented the first time in Melbourne's history that we never had a metropolitan-wide approach that had been developed from local government uh, rather than imposed by the state. It still cooperated with the state and many, many other um, private sector and uh, not-for-profit organisations, but fundamentally it was driven by local government. So to kind of go back to the beginning, if I characterise the conversations that I had with those chief executives uh, in, in early 2015, the general response was, this is really important work. Um, I'm really pleased you're doing it. I'm really pleased that I'm not doing it because you're never going to pull it off. And as I say, by, in 2015, we showed uh, that we could pull it off uh, and that it did work. From that moment in June, July 2015, we then moved from strategy creation to actually implementing projects. And we may come on to what some of those look like in a bit, but to kind of get to the end of my time uh, as as Chief Resilience Officer, I, I finished up in the role in June 2020. And I think it was unfortunate, but not entirely unpredictable, that this great collaboration and and the tremendous opportunity that that posed when faced with a truly existential challenge, i.e. the coronavirus uh, pandemic, too many councils uh, and and one of two uh, critical ones uh, in particular, withdrew withdrew within their own boundaries. So we had actually created a vehicle that I still believe could have played a, a really important part uh, in, in helping us to to deal with the pandemic. Uh, but unfortunately, under stress, people backed away from it, which is not to say that they backed away from all of the activities. There's a bunch of stuff still going on uh, within individual councils uh, and, and projects that have ongoing legacies. But, but the whole Resilient Melbourne Metropolitan-wide initiative uh, came to an end then.
1: Oh, there was a couple of key points there that I'd like to touch on. And the first one was that this sounds great. The quote, you know, this sounds great, but it's never gonna work. And then I guess the fruition of of um that coming to a head when I guess resilience was needed, a few key players decided to, you know, exit. For me, I, I see that a lot, that in any workplace, but you know especially on a on bigger levels bigger institutions or in government or in in, um, in places where there's lots of stakeholders that come together there's a lot of connectedness on that first day when we, you explore vision you know when you explore you know what it means like what, what it might look like and then the the yeah buts come in but yeah but you know what about this and this and this and this and then um, even that can be. Moved around uh, and mm-hmm. and sort of avoided when there isn't a, a critical moment. But as soon as that critical moment happens, I guess that's when resilience is needed. And and the whole role is this. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to see that you know the well the, the resilience strategy, requiring resilience like in its inception that yeah. you know there was this COVID nineteen hits and I know that you touched on um the potential for epidemics and, and pandemics to affect somewhere. I don't know if there's a question behind this, but that's just something I find interesting. Is there a point that you can um, bounce from, from what I've just said?
0: One of the things we haven't touched on is actually, you know, the definition of resilience. Uh, And I think that's helpful because resilience has a, a, a strength or a value as a word, because it's kind of intuitive. We all know most people can give you an answer to if you say what does it mean to be resilient and say oh let me tell you a story about my aunt she's amazing she's so resilient in a way that the term sustainability uh, is actually not so accessible I I think even for specialists such as myself it's hard to describe exactly what it would be to be a sustainable person but the the flip side of that is uh, resilience therefore means slightly different things to different people so the way that across what is now called the Resilient Cities Network, um, uh, and so Melbourne is still a part of that, uh, as now the city of Melbourne, the uh, definition that we all applied, uh, and and one of our successes, is that this was adopted by the state of Victoria as the the definition of resilience that it it applies. And that is resilience is about the ability of systems, institutions, organisations, communities, uh, and individuals and their ability to adapt, to survive and to thrive in the face of whatever chronic stresses and acute shocks that they face. And again, part of the value of this kind of work is really thinking about the interplay between the stresses and the shocks. And I mentioned this in answering your question about insights as to why resilient Melbourne didn't withstand the shock of of, of coronavirus Um, uh, and I I guess one of the things we've we observe all around the world is that when disasters strike at whatever scale it is those assets uh, and people who are in the most stressed situations who bear the brunt of the shocks and I guess as an organization, we were founded essentially entirely on goodwill or almost entirely on goodwill and a willingness to cooperate. And so that meant that there was a degree of stress uh, there was uh, within the the very structure uh, of the office that we created. One of the great things about Resilient Melbourne uh, was that while we were bureaucratically aligned uh, we worked across so many different institutions at both state uh, and local levels um, that while bureaucratically aligned we were not bureaucratically uh, beholden as it were so we did great things because we were quick and uh and and flexible and so forth but with that flexibility we maybe lacked some of the robust uh, that also uh, is required for true longevity yeah, you, you mentioned a few things there
1: that I, that I found really interesting, and 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 one of them was the idea of being flexible allows you to to, to pivot it and and maneuver. But usually, those institutions, those old bodies of you know, with culture, with lots of different heads and perspectives, and and a past to leverage off, are able to survive yeah. through that. Everyone talks about this moment of COVID as a, as an ability to pivot, as an ability to manoeuvre and adapt, and, um, and that's resilience. And you mentioned, you know, my grandmother being really resilient because she was able to do X, Y, Z. So there's a personal side to it that's required, and that personal side that I wanted to mention came through the guise of people hoarding toilet paper or doing things that they probably shouldn't have done um, that caused more panic and chaos. But when people are feeling maybe where scarcity dominates their thinking rather than the idea of uh, knowing what's happening next year, what's happening next week. You know, having Mm -hmm. a sense of the future being safe and secure, I guess, allows people to make better choices. And and you mentioned there that uh, the fact that you were moving quite quickly when the acute shock hit certain areas and potentially maybe the most disadvantaged or, or... areas that had the most to lose uh-huh. were probably the ones that bore the brunt of that and then, you know, said, nah, we're going to ditch this thing that probably would help us, but we just don't have time to to focus on it or, or to put our effort into that right now. So we understand the toilet paper idea. We understand that there are people that bear the brunt of, of shocks that get out of there. But what did you notice when COVID hit that was the biggest shock to people? And, um, and what exactly was it that Was you don't have to mention who, but what was a program that sort of you felt had legs and then it disintegrated under the stress that acute stress of COVID?
0: Maybe because nationally it was um, such a phenomenon. Uh, I might start uh, with the toilet paper, Uh, and I think that in a peculiar way, the hoarding of toilet paper was a collective rational, irrational response to COVID. And what I mean by that is when you say, you know, what were sort of people most shocked by, et cetera, for many it was uh, just a loss of control uh, and an, ability, an inability to go on with life as they expected it. And so the purchasing of, of a non-perishable good that you know is going to be needed at some point and, you know, actually plays more than one function, uh, should you need, uh, is kind of a rational response to uh, that sense of loss of control. How do I equip myself to feel that I have essentials and I'm taking control of this situation, you know, and it's cheaper and more accessible than just taking yourself off the grid or Uh, and so on. Um, Now, the irrational element is actually what we saw was the behaviors that we saw around it were irrational. uh, And we were able to meet demand. uh, And obviously, we'd have managed it, that small example better had we not had the bulk buying, etc. But I sometimes, um, but as I say, there is a degree of Uh, I think one can understand how people got themselves into that situation. Resilient Melbourne did not have any uh, projects uh, associated with toilet paper. And uh, so an example of one that was both impacted in a positive way by COVID but in other ways uh, negatively would be uh, our work to create a metropolitan-wide cycling network. Um, the specific goal of that project was to make Melbourne the safest and, importantly, most accessible cycling city in Australia. And so with um, COVID-19 hitting, what we've seen is uh, a number of councils um, taking the opportunity of reduced traffic to expand bike lanes to to, to make Melbourne somewhat more uh, navigable by bike. but what we lost uh, with the sort of metropolitan-wide coordinating piece uh, and the fact that we were pulling together representatives from local government advocacy networks uh, and, and critical state department parts of the, uh, the state government such as thick roads and uh, active transport victoria, uh, means that we have lost the opportunity to do things in a truly coherent way um, that will lead to a genuine and transformational approach to cycling and, and active transport um, rather than the piecemeal approach that um, has characterised the city for many years.
1: And and almost the the idea of having this network, which is great, and if it was, you know, all-inclusive, uh, I guess, would probably have an effect where people would go, this this actually works. I can get from the outer or middle suburbs all the way into the city. I can get across suburbs with a, and avoid the city and I can do these on roads or I can even make sure I do these along river, you know, creeks and, um, you know, following yep. rivers and and wherever you decide. But the minute that there's, I guess, gaps in this initiative is almost the minute where all of it doesn't work because I do notice that for me as an example of someone that doesn't really ride often I -hmm. don't do it because I don't like riding on the road or in when in shared roads I guess is what I should say and I've got many paths around me and I can do recreational rides but I can't do those big rides to where I really want to go um, and feel safe doing it. So for me as, as an example that someone that once again my values would say that Everyone should ride, and I should ride. Yet I find myself driving mostly. Um, yeah, that's that. In in a, in and of itself, is an issue that we do find everywhere. And and it goes back to that quote: "Where great idea, can it actually work? How does it feel?" I guess to have an idea, know that it would work and that people would be on board with it if only it can actually make it to the end Um, and then sort of having that ripped apart and then it doesn't work as well and then you're sort of not proven wrong but you didn't have a chance to prove yourself right, I guess.
0: So I'm phenomenally proud of the work that our team uh, and the network of people that we pull together from uh, across many different organisations, both within and outside of government, did. Uh, and that ranges from, uh, you know, something that your listeners might enjoy seeking out, which is we ran a great um, collaboration with uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation to run a project called Takeover Melbourne. Takeover Melbourne was uh, an open competition for young people uh, who would write in uh, describing challenges that they had overcome. And we had uh, a one, one winner selected from each uh, of the 32 councils. And so, as I say, if anyone wants to search uh, for ABC Takeover Melbourne, you can hear um, the winners, uh, the 32 winners, giving and telling their stories, which have then been, uh, they were mentored, and and ABC helped them to professionally produce uh, their stories to ABC quality. Uh, And they're really, uh, at times, moving. Uplifting, but very powerful stories. So um, there are projects like that. There are um, the Open Innovation Challenge that we ran, where we had international entries from uh, uh, 111 uh, from I think 22 countries from from memory, uh, trying to help Melbourne solve uh, the twin challenges we put out this call. How do we solve uh, the challenge of increasing social isolation alongside increasing? Uh, transport congestion. So, in some ways, people, whether they're in cars or in public transport, are more congested, and yet we're ever more isolated. So, we had such a, an array of ideas as to how to challenge that. We worked on uh, a couple of great projects with some of the winners. Uh, the work of uh, metropolitan wide urban forest strategy um, is living on. We've um, both by connecting all of the different councils. Um, uh, but also through the sponsorship of the uh, all of the metropolitan areas, relevant water authorities. you know, And that's just a few. And there are many other projects, that ha- as I say, that have other and ongoing legacies. So there's a real pride and probably an overused word uh, at this moment in time, but nonetheless, uh, a lot of gratitude uh, for what we were uh, a- able to accomplish. In terms of how it felt, I guess the fact that, that we were so far beyond just being a good idea, uh, and that we really had some profound runs on the board, kind of made it more painful. Your listeners won't be surprised that when you play in the world of politics, there's sometimes uh, politics uh in, in this. And so there's some politics in uh that kind of were going on in the background of this. Uh, and I think it's important to, to the extent we can, both for you know, for uh uh, our well-being and individual resilience to understand when are we to blame for something and you know, a, a, and when should we kind of hold ourselves accountable and, and use that as a learning opportunity. Uh, and when do we also need to understand that some things are just are, are not our fault, even if they are uh, our responsibility. And you can also learn from those as well. But I think it's important not to... Um, to try to let go of some of the, you know, n- the guilt or disappointment that might come with uh, not quite achieving the greatest ambitions that you have.
1: And I guess out of that also, you know, comes the idea of getting fifty percent of the way in something or seventy percent of the way is better than zero. And um, there's always going to be uh, lessons that the next person that takes the mantle will take in, you know, ensuring that there's something like a cycle network or, you know, urban forests.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's a really important point as well. When we set up, isn't it, Melbourne, we were consciously not trying to create another bit of bureaucracy or yet another well-intentioned uh, organisation. We've got a lot of very well-intentioned organisations trying to do better things for Melbourne. So I'm not sure where we were on the percentage scale, We did want to evolve all of our activities and the lessons and uh, the, the general approaches into a range of other organizations to take it forward over the longer term. It's just we needed a bit more time than we had.
1: The perspective I sort of come at this at, and 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 the reason, once again, you know, to to try to um, gather people like yourself uh, to tell their story and, and what they've worked on, is that I find there's a lot of cynicism, a lot of uh, maybe apathy towards big picture stuff, towards government stuff, even I guess um, corporate stuff. There's a lot of sentiment that. People are only in it for it themselves, or that's just, you know, pie in the sky sort of stuff. And by doing that, and, and you sort of talked about the psychology behind the toilet paper debacle. So I try and often go into the psychology, which is not always bad. It's you know, it's sometimes well intentioned or or um or not necessarily bad, but there's a psychology that People feel so out of control or maybe so distant from the things that go on around them or maybe just not powerful enough that they they tend to try to flush things down the toilet or belittle it or something, and I find mm-hmm. that around me a lot. And and my role, I guess, in communicating ideas, and I do this with students too is uh, as a teacher, is to say that you have agency. Everyone started at a point where they, they wished something would happen or that they... They had to work on something, you know, a, a prime minister or, or a president or in most cases worked hard in in maybe not recently, but no, no. everyone worked really hard in, in one way or another to get where they were. And they, they found a gap that they wanted to, to jump in and to try to take action and, and step up. And that can be from someone that's, you know, in politics, someone that's, you know, runs a charity, someone that just gets a collective of people together in a neighbourhood to to do little events, you know, there is an agency that needs to be harnessed. And, Toby, you know, you've jumped at the opportunity to to really connect a lot of people and and you went really far with that. But And you you talked about some of the pride but then the disappointment, but there is a a sense of agency that exists. For those that have that cynicism and that probably don't want to step up and um, at this point in time, and say, look, it's not worth it because, look, even Toby, someone that's got so well credentialed, tried his hardest, and it didn't even work 100. So why should I bother? What is it that that you can, I guess, suggest or, or try to work out in the personal psychology side, and then transition that to the to the world that you you're in professionally? How how do we help people step up and and maybe accept challenges? And
0: yeah, there's a you know, <laughs> there's a lot in that, Matt. And I think there's a, a number of ways uh, of thinking about it. Ultimately, humanity has been successful because of our enterprising, pioneering spirit. You know, we've always wanted to see what is beyond the next hill. You know, and uh, how do we do that a bit better? And so I think within society, there will always be people who are driven uh, to try to do more both for themselves and for others. I think, and so I think we can all take heart from that. You know, the Henry Ford quotation uh, that whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're probably right, uh, is apposite um, is here. I mean, most extraordinary people have, more than anything, been extraordinarily dedicated they haven't necessarily been the smartest I mean some have in certain fields and so forth but it's really that willingness to have a go uh, and to keep going I think in other ways you know not everyone has to strive to change the world for the better the more that do the more they're motivated by that obviously the more positive that is but sometimes just acts of living you know Sometimes, for some people, getting out of bed and just getting on with life is a heroic step, even in itself. And we shouldn't dismiss that or forget about it in our, in our desire for, for, you know, to strive for more, for better. And in terms of uh, the broader apathy and cynicism, it is a really fascinating moment in the history of the world. Uh, It's a moment that I often refer to as the irony age. And what I mean by that is that we have better science uh, than we've ever had in the history of humankind. We have an ability to model and predict the future in ways that we've never been able to until the most recent of years. And yet, the world is so complex and moving so fast, we have less idea. Of what the future for us personally will look like than at any moment in history. And science has become optional. I don't believe in climate change, people say, which is about the sensible as saying I don't believe in gravity uh, from a scientific perspective or scientific consensus perspective. But nonetheless, I I think we have created fertile grounds for cynicism uh, and apathy. Let me. Maybe address them: cynicism on, on one hand, and apathy on the other. In terms of apathy, for many economically better-off countries, there's been a view that you know life's pretty good. The burgeoning middle class; everyone has a flat-screen. You know, not everyone, but you know, a significant proportion of of society can meet their basic needs and some. But I think one of the things that's been really interesting in recent years uh, under the Trump administration in the US, under the Johnson government in the UK, and in governments, uh, so that's in the context of, sorry, Trump and then Brexit in the UK, uh, and then all around the world in the context of COVID responses. And so one of the things that I think recent years have shown for those who are certainly apathetic in the political kind of context and field is we have really shown that political leadership still matters uh, and it matters um, from how countries are directed, Uh, it matters. And that flows right down to to people's uh, livelihoods in very immediate ways. An example of that, um, I was with the president of the 100 Resilient Cities Initiative, who, so he was normally based in New York. He happened to be based. With, uh, happened to be uh, visiting with me, uh, and we were giving. He was giving a talk at uh, Parliament House the day of the Trump election, and the next day he had to have an all-staff meeting uh, with him dialing in from Australia, because his staff members, who were very diverse and so forth, their children were going to school and literally. With the change in administration, people, kids were coming up to the the children of his colleagues and saying things like, "Well, you're you're from Mexico, so now you're going to have to go home. I can't be your friend anymore." Um, It was overnight the the impact of that political change, Uh, and as I say, we've seen that you know where we've had the sort of more there's a correlation it would seem between the more what you might call macho-style traditional leaders who thought they could just shirt-front the virus. And we've seen, you know, the horrific uh, results in, in the form of, you know, literally millions of deaths uh, around the world. Uh, and so from an, in terms of apathy, um, we've, uh, I, I think, as I say, we understand maybe why there's been apathy, um, you know, uh, for a number of years, Life's been good, but recent times is showing we really can't afford to be apathetic from a political perspective. And then linked but also separate is the cynicism bit. Uh, and I mentioned working on a few projects. Um, one of the projects I'm working on is a, a documentary, uh, which is really focused on uh, media manipulation uh, and uh, the impacts of different kinds of actors and activists on uh, essentially, on our ability to trust to trust one another. Um It's. it's uh, I'm working with a production company at the moment, but it's uh, still relatively early days. So I won't go too, into too much detail. But maybe for uh, maybe I can put myself in for a future podcast. But um <laughs> but the in terms of the cynicism that exists in society, we we cannot entirely ignore that some of our biggest institutions, uh, particularly large corporates and governments and then some have fundamentally lied to people, you know, going back to the fake science around that was put out by tobacco companies uh, in in response to uh, early indications that there might be a link between smoking and, and lung cancer and other forms of disease and that the climate change, you know, the big fossil fuel companies some more than others, but essentially borrowed from that very same playbook uh, in the 1970s and 80s to start dismissing climate change. And what we have seen is then the way that that has sowed doubt within society has then also flowed up to uh, political leaders and so forth. So in Australia, one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world, you know, we have our current government who is fundamentally untruthful about uh, climate change and how we ought to be responding. Uh, and, and so I think there are, uh, and and sorry, and the final piece is that then this has all been compounded by uh, social media uh, and, and the way that the albums are Helping people to, you know, really laser in on, on what they find most interesting and what will resonate most, and what we're creating in these vast international echo chambers uh, that are sowing actually division uh, within society, and thus I think a consequence for that is uh, is an unfortunate but understandable level of cynicism.
1: And that is something that I, I'm always reminded of, that the apathy and cynicism is understandable. Um, and you mentioned the UK and the US, and and they're two nations that were p- prior to populist figures being elected, which we consider to be, basically, some people say that they are the cause of issues, but they are basically a symptom of something that was existing. The UK and the US had life expectancies that were dwindling, you know, you did have this growing sentiment of division, whether that was due to social media or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe a a divergence from the big cities that were making, you know, probably getting more and more wealthy or powerful or at least uh, more attention and you had rural areas or places that were a bit smaller that once had control, feeling less and less um, in control of their lives. So, So there is this idea of panic and anxiety that leads to, I guess, it's very difficult in the midst of uh, anxious moments to step up and and be reasoned. Um, and and the best way to do that sometimes is to either say, "Well, look, the system's stuffed. I'm uh, going to ignore it. I'm going to actively look to belittle it, or I'll look for someone to fix it." And and the way that we look to fix issues from police brutality to governance issues to whatever it might be is to actually um mm-hmm. make it better to fund it to make it more uh transparent mm-hmm. to do all of this but it takes time yeah. and it takes really hard work and sometimes just that you know guy that's going to come in and shirt front everyone and make it happen seems like the best way to make it happen um but it, it eventually it really it comes down to story and story versus science and in a way science takes a long time to to figure out and then once it's there it takes a long time to communicate and then you mentioned modelling, it takes actually a long time for it to occur and that is very different to story, a narrative of have a look at these three incidences where I've seen, you know, this, that's what we're going to have to focus on and that's what we're going to have to believe and um, just the last point there, you mentioned climate change, you mentioned a few things but one of them was COVID that made me really uh, get down on what we could do in the face of climate change, which is a a slower uh, burn, quite literally, in Australia. It's a slower burn compared to something like COVID, but there are still a vast number of people that, in the face of it, still doubt uh, if it's as bad as it's being expressed. And I guess Australia was lucky in the fact that we avoided the big health issues we we had economic issues but we've had health issues that have been averted but still in in the UK and the US people and Netherlands I saw the other day in France there's still riots going on about lockdowns that we now know scientifically to work so what is it I guess from there that we can we can understand the apathy and the cynicism and say look everything's valid there's all these issues that exist but there is an actual way we can make this work it just is it just saying it takes time is it education is it storytelling where do we go from here
0: i mean if you start with the, the scientific piece um you know the science on climate change has been clear for several you know certainly the last 30 years but while scientists are undeniably intelligent they haven't necessarily uh told stories and used language that would connect with people generally um and so I think that has been uh, an unfortunate, um, and so some of the, that has made it much easier. And, and again, this comes back to learning from kind of um, the uh, false science around smoking and so forth. So where um, scientists, uh, you know, would say, was "Sort of, you know, well, we cannot be certain what the exact temperature rise from climate change will be," and so that allowed the the sceptics and the climate denialists to say, see, even the experts don't know exactly what it's going to be. Thus, it's not real. So there are problems with the preciseness of science and scientific language that allows others to tear away at it. Where I think there is an interesting overlap between uh, the Australian government and COVID and climate change, and while it is undoubtedly true that fire has been a feature of the Australian landscape and environment for certainly as long as we have any kind of understanding. It is also increasingly unquestionable that the scale and severity of fires that we're seeing, such as those uh, stretching from uh, New South Wales into Victoria last, uh, you know, the 2019-2020 Christmas, are unprecedented. And I... This bit is now not scientific, but I have a strong view that had it not been for the federal government failing to handle those tragic fires as poorly as they did, we too would have had a more cavalier, bravado type approach to uh, dealing with COVID, but there was no way that the government could afford to have a second catastrophe on the back of the fires uh, in February, March 2020. Uh, and so they actually had to follow the advice of those pesky scientists and put a lot of tr- tr- trust in listening to their most senior uh, medical uh, advisors and so forth. So while that's a potentially c- convoluted answer, but I do think there's actually a, a direct link between uh, climate change, COVID, and, and, and political leadership,
1: and, and it is based on, I guess, the the underlying values of the political, I guess, spectrum. You know, you've got the the individual being the most important thing on one end, and you know, the community, I guess, on the other, especially community of those that you may not know. You know, the idea of helping those that need help, even yeah. if you don't need it. You know, willing to put taxes in, willing to you know, send foreign aid off, whatever it might be. There's that on on one end and the other end is saying, no, if you give everyone the opportunity to to succeed, remove all barriers, you know, people will find, you know, the, the right place to, to end up, you know. People will pull themselves up from the bootstraps and make it happen. But we often find that, yeah, these countries that have allowed individualism to sort of run rampant have been the ones that are hardest hit mm-hmm. when it comes to I guess real issues. I think when when you're talking about a story, when you're talking about even economics, but things that are almost human-created uh, inventions, um, you can get away with with saying whatever and 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 just saying that nah, we're not going to listen to that and it goes away. But when it comes down to things that were outlined mostly in your um, in the Melbourne's Resilience Strategy that I saw, those acute shocks mixed with the chronic stresses. Those things are just they would happen almost some of them, like population and growth and, and things like that would happen with, you know, wouldn't happen without humans. But a lot of those things are scientific. A lot of those things are not going to change based on language. They're gonna they're gonna happen. And we've got to be ready for them. And I do wonder, I like that that idea of um whether the Australian government would have reacted similarly, you know, had they I guess the the reason maybe you say that is because of there was a lot of information and a lot of science, but also ex-fire um, chiefs coming out saying, look, the next fire season is going to be the worst ever. You know, mm-hmm. we've got to do something mm-hmm. about it. And and nothing was done. So I guess maybe they, they yeah. did learn their lesson there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so- or, 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 or as my wife likes to say, Scott Morrison built his career on stopping the boats uh, but failed to stop the only boat that mattered in the context of the Ruby Princess. That is a, a big
1: issue that a lot of people forget, especially on attacks on Victoria. And I'll, as a Victorian, I like to defend Victoria. But um, the Ruby Princess, as well as aged care, there are areas that were probably uh, missed out by the federal government, as well as uh, different state governments, you know, having their own issues along the journey too. And and, and that's something that's interesting. But but uh, once again, my my big thing is that we've got, A lot of people out there that are trying to do the right thing and are willing to do the right thing, and these people are involved in a lot of the the agencies that are attacked by people that want to find someone to blame. Do you find that working with corporates, working with local governments, state governments, you know, federals or or with international organisations, do you find that the people involved are often well-meaning, and I know you're going to say this because you work with them, you're not going to turn around and um, say, no, they're all full of rubbish. But in in earnest, you know, full earnesty here, full honesty, people are often great people and have a well-intentioned to try and do the right thing. And it just happens that sometimes we're within a system or within a, um, you know, an environment that makes things just hard to to get right or hard to make happen perfectly the first time what is a yeah. reflection on on working with people that are probably are seen as bad because they're the the head of a bank or a mining company or whatever it might be or they're you know bad because they're in government what, what is your sense of these people that are in these positions what goes on behind the scenes you know is it a place where everyone's just like what's in it for me and stuff for everyone else or is it a place of collaboration and and values that you know uh, put on the table as well
0: yeah, it's a really good question, Matt, and I'll try to do it justice. If I reflect on, on my career of, uh, as you highlighted, working across different sectors, on the whole, most people want to do the right thing. And, and, and there are various forms of, of collaboration in, in, in different sectors. Um, I think one of my observations is compared to certain corporates, local government internally often doesn't collaborate that well, i.e. within a council there may not be that much great collaboration. But on the other hand, the great majority of people within uh, a council or uh, a local government really are there because they want to help the community. And there is a, a, a sense of togetherness that often comes from that. Uh, and positivity that, that flows as a consequence. Whereas within corporates, often there may be collaboration, but it's to get out uh, a, the newest product or to better sell a mortgage or, or, or so forth. And so the, this is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm generalizing grossly, but I think often you might see more collaboration within a corporate sector, but with less uh, community benefit while uh, local government doesn't necessarily and government more broadly uh, doesn't actually collaborate that well but most people turning up are doing it because they really want to do better things for communities i think the other thing i'd say and this comes from directly working with the chief executive of of a bank uh, and helping run the or running the corporate responsibility committee that to his credit he wanted to to run. And that would be the difference between values and culture. So this particular individual, uh, I believe, had good values and, and ran the Corporate Responsibility Committee because it was important to him. But the culture, despite that, that he allowed to permeate the organization, I would argue was actually quite at odds with the values that on a one-to-one basis, where relatively clear it existed. Now you can pick that apart and say, well, that means you know they weren't sufficiently committed to their values to make sure it transpired everywhere. But to go back to the beginning of your question, uh, I, you know, my experience is that most people in all professional environments turn up uh, at work wanting to do the right thing, wanting to be supportive. Of their immediate colleagues and people outside the organisation, but I think there's a combination of bureaucratic structures that make it um, make the working world often very inhuman. Uh, also, examples where one or two individuals who maybe demonstrate bullying or other behaviours can have a profound impact uh, on the ability of others to really live up to the uh, values and aspirations that they might otherwise. Feel freer to pursue.
1: Yeah, it is a a real tough one. Where I think sometimes the structure in and and wanting to fit in and collaborate and 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 you know make your mark and succeed personally often uh, goes against you know those values you do hold dear, and and that's something that's a challenge that we all face, I guess. Quite often, I think it often. And, and this will probably be my last point before of, um, on the, I guess, political realm and, and professional realm, I guess, before getting a little bit more into you, Toby, but the idea of the incentives not being there, I think everything comes down to that incentive that, you know, I want solar panels on my roof, but they're I just can't afford them right now, so that incentive isn't there. You know, the incentive mm-hmm. of riding a bike to work, the incentive of whatever it might be to make this world a better place. D- do you think that that it will eventually come down to, or what role do incentives, I guess, play, you know, on a level of a personal level of incentives as well as a maybe a more policy-minded uh, level of incentives?
0: Ultimately, incentives come. Account for everything. It just depends on what incentivizes different people. So some people will be really incentivized by uh the prospect of a financial bonus at the end of the year, going back to your banker example. But others might be incentivized by having freedom to go and look after their uh their new babies, for example. And for others, you know, that sense of when I look at my friends who work at you know, in the Red Cross and other humanitarian organizations, while it's certainly not a selfish thing, but they are profoundly incentivized by the feeling that they get as a result of their altruism. So I I think you're probably asking for a more specific thing around kind of traditional uh, incentives, but I do think ultimately we all respond to incentives. Uh, It's just a question of, which is, uh, which in, what form of incentive we value most? That leads us uh, to behave in different ways.
1: Oh, well, I guess on that specific note, then, for me, the world is run for profit, isn't it? I guess businesses, at the end of the day, will say, "I wish we could do that, but we just don't have the money to do it." Whether it's a lack of money or whether it's a lack of um, profits at the end of it to share amongst you know their shareholders or, or business partners or whatever it might be. So. Everything. I mean, even in the public school sector, you know, there's issues that you know what this would definitely make kids better off. But if we do that, we will then have to, you know, cut back on these areas, or we'll have to beg for money here, or whatever it might be. So at the end of the day, everything is guided in the current world to be run by profit. And maybe that's a bit of a socialist coming out of me that, you know, that uh, looks at things through that economic lens. But I, I just see the world's. And people's uh, mind often told the story that we're told is, you know, to do with money. And people that shop at Kmart and we're all whatever we've all been we've all done it or buy things off eBay and and we know that this thing is going to potentially break, but right now it looks good. I need it and it's cheap. And I'm not going to be bothered if it's on the nature strip in four weeks, um, you know, to get picked up by you know and go into landfill. Do you have any ideas? Knowing that we've got a climate crisis, we've got you know uh, an urbanisation crisis. So I guess this incentives can go down to urban sprawl and um, new estates and things like that that don't have much of a community spirit and, and vibe. We can go into that realm with incentives all these places are incentivized by can we get away with doing it at the lowest cost or get the highest amount of profit from it and is there a way that we can slowly transition ourselves without bankrupting and just tearing up the system you know in a very orderly manner to just go okay we need to start shifting from when we make a decision it's not how much money is at the end of it 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 is the most social good, or the most um, the least impact on the environment—you know, whatever it might be—is there? Is there a process that you've thought about in in, in your own minds that might help us all um, be able to move forward in a more resilient, sustainable manner?
0: So, I mean, there has been um, uh, a lot of work over a number of years to try to uh, uh, um, see. Companies reporting more against their triple bottom line. Large corporates that is reporting on their triple bottom line. So what are their social, environmental, and economic impacts? And uh, you know that is essentially the response of a profoundly capitalist system to needing to try and try try to take some step uh, towards different ways of operating. There's a part of me that thinks that. We're not looking ahead at a climate crisis. We are in the climate crisis. Um, We are in a plastic waste crisis. Uh, We are in a um, depletion of uh, the oceans carrying capacity and and frankly, all of us carrying capacity. And I am a little bit torn. There's part of me that thinks we are so entrenched in that system, uh, in the system of Uh, pursuing profit uh, above all else. That for all of the kind of corporate responsibility, uh, ambitions, and much as Larry Fink, the chief executive of BlackRock, the world's largest fund manager, may talk about the need for companies uh, and indeed uh, state that they will only hold the stock of companies um, that have climate change uh, commitments and plans. For all of that development, it's still a fundamentally the same system uh, and will not move us far or fast enough. And then there's another part of me that says there are so many good people and smart people working on different ways of doing business, um, really trying to move us to a circular economy towards um, not just being carbon neutral, but carbon positive uh, or net negative, um, which Presley is essentially the same situation. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think we may well see new forms of doing uh, doing business a more compassionate way of doing business in the years ahead.
1: Toby, you've you've talked about a lot of what's going on right now. You've talked about the professional environment you've worked in and a little bit about what you've done. But I want to hear a little bit about the journey of how you got there. Where did you grow up? Were there any events in your life that, you know, have shaped who you are? Where did you get the values that you've got? Can you take us on a little bit of an autobiographical journey of, um, I guess, you know, a young Toby and, and how you got to the point where you are today?
0: Yeah. So I grew up in the southeast of England village called Robertsbridge in East Sussex. We had a small farm uh, on one hand, I think what you'd probably call nowadays a hobby farm. But um, that was really important in terms of kind of grounding me on the one hand, kind of rural issues and nature. Um, But my mum at the same time was a psychology lecturer at the University of London. And both professionally as a social psychologist, um, but just as a person, she was extremely keen on both understanding and encouraging kindness and empathy, or probably the other way around, empathy and as a result kindness uh, in in people. And so there was always that. um, I remember often I uh, sort of uh, I have this sort of enduring memory of childhood of my mum not necessarily telling me off uh, for things, but saying, well. How do you think that made them feel? Uh, you know, how would you feel if, and so on. So I guess there's a sort of an underlying uh, underlying consistent theme of, of empathy in the way that I was raised. And my father was and still is a specialist in disaster emergency relief. Um, and so certainly in my, he, he was away for much of my time during my, my teenage years in particular. But I guess we kind of combine those two things and, uh, you know, and that kind of mix between sort of living essentially a rural environment but being very aware and going quite often to London is kind of uh, – and then, you know, I remember growing up, um, you know, genuine conversations around the dinner table of things, uh, you know, my father saying kind of, you know, well, I and mean, is there any such you – know, maybe we really shouldn't talk about natural disasters Um, there aren't natural disasters there's just a failure in planning and preparedness and so I guess I kind of took that unconsciously into my adult life I think in terms of specific events uh, I've been uh, quite accident prone throughout my life and uh, when I was four I technically drowned uh, I, my heart stopped beating and so on. And I, the reason I'm here today is that I was fortunate enough that a um, there was a roofer doing some work on a nearby house um, and he heard screams coming from where I was floating in a pool. And he gave me, because he was ex-army, he gave me CPR for 45 minutes. He just didn't stop uh, until the ambulance arrived. And so that's the that's the difference between me being here and not. And then putting aside various other smaller calamities along the way uh, when i was 18 i had 17 turning 18 um, i had quite a bad car crash and broke both my femurs and the only reason that they didn't amputate my legs was that they couldn't to get me out of the, the car wreck was that they couldn't get enough blood plasma there to amputate and so uh they kind of pulled me off this tree on which I was stuck in a manoeuvre that they were not going to do um, because of the risk of spinal damage. So even now I have quite an acute memory uh, of coming around in hospital and a nurse saying, you're really lucky you still have both your legs. And just this sense of being conscious of the drowning, conscious of other things, and just sort of saying to myself, I'm not saying to myself, but being really alert to this idea that life is short and fragile and that thus as an approach to life, we either need to, you know, really have an awful lot of fun uh, and expect to burn out fast or try to have a positive impact on the world. And I think in terms of how I've tried to live my life and hopefully I've got a fair bit still to go, uh, I'd like to believe I've I've managed to balance both the impact and the fun uh, so far.
1: Oh, unbelievable Uh, story and and journey there. To have gone through both of those, I guess, traumatic events or could have been very traumatic, shows resilience within you. Do you think that um, having that personal experience of resilience and having to fight through, I guess, (laughs) drowning and, and, you know, basically dying and then being brought back to life to then having a, a, a moment where you could have lost your legs or had spinal damage. But there's there's a couple of things here. There's the resilience and personal growth that I'd like you to touch on, as well as the fact that you probably are so grateful to the the, the world we live in where there are people willing to save your life and, and do the right things by you that probably gives you hope in making society remain and, and improve, I guess, as
0: well. Uh, can you touch on those two areas? So, um, on an individual basis, I'm very grateful for the people who helped me. I don't think I have ever consciously uh, aligned their actions with optimism for the world more broadly. I think more reflecting on the fact that when you look back at history, um, good has went out. A lot of my reading recently has has been around various uh, colonial impacts and um yeah anyway i'm not so sure that good always wins out but at least we defeated the Nazis. but yeah i, I, I and i think in terms of personal resilience um one of the things that i was sort of you know your, your point about these impacts uh and in terms of my uh, approach to life i mean certainly I, I i wasn't sure if i was going to mention this or not but something I don't normally talk about, uh, I don't think I've ever talked about publicly, uh, is also that a, a few years ago, I also had cancer or was diagnosed and treated for cancer. And certainly for some, you know, my my first, my second son was, I think, about two months old when I was diagnosed. Uh, and it was, while I wouldn't in any way suggest that um, that I was relaxed about it, it was necessarily um, pretty traumatic. but. Uh, in other ways, um, I think there is, you know, maybe my dad, my dad's words um, to my wife's parents, which I don't think they found very reassuring, kind of encapsulates where I, my, my, you know, the fact that I had had these other things happen in my life. So they were worried that their, you know, relatively recently married daughter was about to become a widow, to which my dad's response was, "Oh, don't worry. topes has a near death experience every few years. He'll be all right." <laughs> <laughs> um uh, and I I guess I have kind of slightly um I hope I'm not tempting fate, but um, you know, got that sense of stuff happens and when you stare into the abyss, the only thing to do is to keep moving. For me, uh people have different responses, but um the way I have dealt best with challenge and I think this has been informed by, you know, having to learn how to walk again recently as a result of a additional surgery because of the throat cancer, Uh, I've had to learn how to talk again. Um, And so, you know, I I think our our makeup is defined by how we cope with um, things going wrong. And most people, as a general trajectory, most people will step up and be resilient in the face of adversity, which is not to suggest there won't be pitfalls and bad days along the way um, but the general trajectory I believe that most people follow is um, a, a generally positive one. Thanks Toby for sharing that and is, is everything okay at the moment?
1: Are you, are you going along strong right now?
0: I am um, yeah I mean, apparently there will be an end at some point but hopefully I'm not looking it's not too close yet.
1: You're view on the world at the moment and the way that you're able to to keep on keeping on in the face of that is you said when you stare into the abyss, you know, the only thing you can do is keep on keeping on. But um, there's got to be something in that that, that you can, um, that we can we can grab somewhere along the way there. Do you, you've mentioned play being something important and having fun, maybe not taking things too seriously in, in probably, you know, where, where everyone's busy and serious. You've probably been able to... Um, to keep that element of fun as as something that gets you get keeps you going, uh, are there other things in your life that you do or must do or or, or dabble in that that really help keep you aligned?
0: Uh, aligned in what context? Uh, aligned between your interest around values and work, or aligned in terms of kind of emotionally, you know, or my chakras are in alignment, or whatever. Um,
1: I, I think for me, everything starts within, and then once you've got yourself sorted, you're able to then enter the world and um, and try to make a difference, and 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 feel you know safe in your foundation that you're able to to really do something where you're comfortable and feeling powerful enough to to step in, through life in your shoes as yourself. So by alignment, I mean you seem to be yeah. able to do that. Uh, at least from um, an outsider looking into you professionally, how do you make sure that within the within the, the personal Toby is able to stay strong enough to be able to then go into the world and meet with these uh, all these different people that are probably quite different and diverse and powerful in their own ways?
0: So I think, without being too frightened about this, but some of it does go back to my childhood in that, I was uh, absolutely raised with you know, with love uh, and support around me, and even though my father was absent for you know, significant chunks of time, I think combination of the fact that he was, you know, he was, for example, um, the humanitarian coordinator uh, in Rwanda at the end of the genocide, and in uh, working in Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, went into Kosovo with the paratroopers. You know, it wasn't like my father had kind of abandoned me because he was more interested in some nefarious pursuit um so there was always an understanding of why he wasn't at home and there was always a profound sense of love when he was there uh, and then I now uh, am fortunate enough to have my own family uh and you know like any family we have our moments but uh, profoundly at the core of it there's a tremendous amount of love and mutual support um between the four of us, me my wife uh, and the boys, I think that gives me um, both a tremendous energy and an ongoing sense of purpose. Again, I I feel fortunate that's part of my makeup and what I have to draw on. Um, I certainly don't think that everybody needs that. There are, of course, many, many um, truly admirable people who haven't um, had that kind of stability and background, so I don't see it as a prerequisite Um, but, as I say, that's part of what I draw on. I think another thing is the work of Daniel Kahneman, uh, who wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Unfortunately, I'm not um, as smart as Daniel Kahneman, so I'm probably not going to ever write the book, but I think there is something about forgetting fast and slow, by which I mean... Uh, and this is both at a, an individual level and also at a you know, um, at a city and national scale where we really need to the remembering or the forgetting slowly. You know, it's so important that we learn from the past uh, that we you know take the very best ideas that have gone before uh, and don't you know, uh, and build that into both our lives and, you know, what are the mistakes that, you know, we've made in our own lives that we want to avoid replicating, you know, so, that, as I say, that's the individual level and for us talking about that, you know, at the sort of city or national scale. But it's also really important to let things go. Uh, and, you know, I think I'm very fortunate that actually I really don't dwell I'm, it's just not part of my makeup to dwell on uh, these kind of mishaps that I've had. So I'm informed by them, but I don't really live with them. And as I say, for me as an individual, that's just fortunate. It seems to be <laughs> either because of being so so accident-prone and it's uh, just become a uh, instilled within me, but I actually think it's broader than that. I think it's just part of uh, I've got a lucky makeup in that way. But I think collectively... Um, we also need to find ways to remember the past and at times to do so and recognize it or to draw from it to inform better decisions, better policy in order that in other ways we can let things go uh, quickly and with it the trauma. and that may be particularly relevant here in Australia on on the in the week following the Australia day celebrations or commiserations depending on, uh, people's take on it.
1: Yeah, and you also mentioned that idea of everything, you know, getting better in the future and but reflecting on colonialism and and the horrors of that, you know, that there has been progress. Uh, we say progress and in all these areas but what has it been built on in a way? What has it been destroying it along the way? Um, I'd love you to just give me a little vision of... <laughs> a dystopia that you can envision, maybe if you want to make it a Melbourne-minded one or you can go global if you'd like, yeah. and then a utopia uh, or a, a vision of what could be. So, you know, what 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 are we facing, you know, what do you fear and then what, what is it that you want to, um that you think is a possibility of a, a much better and greater future too?
0: Yeah, so uh, I, I sometimes end up doing some uh, future scenarios work. Um, Uh, And often when we talk about um, scenario planning and scenarios where we refer to um, this is not uh, a probable uh, future, but it is a plausible future. And sadly, I mean, the dystopian plausible future uh, is that in a world of increasing scarcity for resources, there is greater competition between peoples. Within the nations uh, and between nations, and so in a, you know, a Melbourne or an Australian context, you know, seeing really um, the rise of the right-wing um, extremist politics, uh, um, as I say, fueled uh, and exacerbated by uh, concerns for all about the ability to feed one's own family and, and and nourish more broadly i think that that social collapse societal collapse turning it on itself um, is my dystopian fear and you know there's uh my, my utopian uh is almost necessarily the kind of mm, the opposite of that in in which we see a world that is more just for all, um, fundamentally for all humans, but also more just for nature and the world around us, um, whereby the way that we generate energy, the way that we um, move around the world, um, the way that we consume resources are done in a way uh, that actually uh, enable the earth on which we fundamentally all depend, uh, has an opportunity to begin to regenerate there is for all my optimism uh, and uh, belief in moving and working towards a, a better more sustainable world, there is a an unfortunate reality that we consume every year more resources than the world can produce. but to go full circle on this uh I still believe that we have the wherewithal uh and now we just need um, the collective commitment to actually um, live in a more um, sensible and sensitive way.
1: When when looking at the future, it's very easy to to have fear and and, and allow fear to dominate. But I th- think that facing fears and and as you said, your your dad's job facing you know some of the 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 worst things the world's ever seen. You know in the '90s there uh, and and learning from that. But it's and he's quote you know preparing for the worst. You know uh, making sure that we're aware of what's coming ahead you know this denial of the climate crisis will not benefit us in any way except for our own anxieties in the short term we need to face Mm -hmm. it and 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 the only way to do that is by understanding the problems and then actually looking to face that problem so you know living with fun and play at the center of your life you know doing things for yourself uh, as you do and then but then also acknowledging that you know what, unless we step up and really commit, as you said, uh, we're not going to be in a better place in 20 years. We're going to be in a much worse place. But with commitment and drive, we can do it. And all of your sentiment, both dystopian and utopian, were about that community and people. And that means we've got choice. It's not like there's an Mm -hmm. asteroid on its way and we're done for. You know, at the end of the day, we have choice in this matter. So before my last question... Do you have a call to action or or something that you'd like to leave the listeners with to maybe begin thinking about or doing without, you know, I don't want to be preachy, but, you know, what is it that you would suggest um,
0: uh, listeners Um, start to look at? Yes, it's funny. Um, I sometimes felt in, in the local government space that I could at times be a bit too corporate and I definitely felt in the corporate space that at times I was a bit too... Uh, hippie is not the right word, but anyway, maybe a little soft. Anyway, so uh, at the risk of answering your sounding a little bit um, either polyamorous or a little bit hippie, given you've just asked the question, um, my call to action would be something that should be manageable for everyone. Be kind, take the time to, the courage to knock on your neighbor's door sometime and introduce yourself. Too many of us just don't know our neighbours. You know, when you've done that, say hi. Thank the bus driver. You know, there's things that really should be the basics, um, but too often in modern society we've let go.
1: That is brilliant. And uh, I guess you, you mentioned this in the big cities that we're more congested, less connected than ever. Um, I think it, it does start with that being kind. So thank you for that. Now, Where can people follow you, find you, look at what you're doing and um, connect with you possibly?
0: Sure. So um, my Twitter handle is TobyKent01 and it's the same uh, on LinkedIn. Brett and I sometimes put stuff out through the Ellis Kent website, so www.elliskent.com. And uh, for other ones, you'll have to get me back on uh, sometime uh, uh, on another occasion, Matt. I know. I'd love
1: that. And and potentially when... um, COVID uh, lessons, well, it's almost there now. We're, we're able to to connect in person and maybe do this um, face-to-face, uh, which would be lovely. Uh, before I let you go, Moments of Clarity is the name of the podcast, Toby, and I ask every guest this, have you had a moment of clarity recently that you'd like to share with us today?
0: My moment of clarity recently, Matt, was uh, I was up in Northeast Victoria doing a little bit of work with one of the community recovery committees from a community impacted by last year's fires and we got them uh, this group of about 25 or so to map on a a recovery chart that kind of shows where are you in relation to where were you immediately following the event sort of through um, disappointment and despair back sort of building up to recovery and so forth where were they and uh, where did they think the rest of the community were on the on this chart? And to a person, the people on the committee um, put themselves quite a bit ahead of where they thought the broader community was. And my moment of clarity is that I believe all of those people on the committee were more ahead than the rest of the community in their eyes. Not so much because they were. Kind of pillars of that community and farmers, you know, successful farmers or the CEO of the local health authority. But I fundamentally believe because they had agency uh, and I think that importance of agency um, as part of um, providing uh, a sense of well-being because you are taking control uh, of your life to the extent you can uh, was my moment of clarity
1: unbelievable and uh fits the motto of this podcast really well that 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 purpose that search for agencies um i think what we all want so thank you so much for sharing that moment of clarity thank you so much for sharing so much about yourself as well toby and um good luck and uh you know i really hope that you're able to you know continue the journey that you're on in a really successful manner and thank you for everything that you've
0: you've done and thank you for joining me it's been a pleasure matt thank you very much
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.